feel secure. Here I bring before you my desire to count, my desire to demonstrate my worth, my need to prove to myself and others that I can do this, whatever this is. Now, there's some maybe a little less heavy messages in our need to control. There are things like very real responsibilities we have to provide for ourselves and our families. We want to succeed. We want to be able to do well enough that we are not dependent on handouts from others. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you probably know, somewhere in your lifetime, either you or someone you know has experienced the temptation to take it a step beyond. To take it a step to the place where I can control what I'm doing. I can push back the darkness of the fear because I can stand on my own accomplishments and I have the earnings to prove for it. Therefore, I don't have to be under the illusion. I don't have to be under the illusion Notice I'm not finishing that sentence. Because the real truth is the only illusion is living securely on our own means. That's the illusion. We like to take what we've earned. We like to take our abilities. We like to make our mark and set ourselves up where we believe in our minds we're dependent on no one but the truth is if you didn't have any reason to believe it before or any eye-opening experience before 2020 has certainly brought to our minds we are not in control mm-hmm. yeah amen not as in so be it but amen as in you know it mm-hmm. yeah. it's in our face isn't it we can't escape it And yet we still yearn for normal, which is to say we want things back the way they were when we were in control. There's a story in our ongoing study of of Acts that speaks a little bit of this issue of control and it refers to another pretty substantial lesson about the place of control in our lives. I invite you you brought your Bible, or if you have access to it on your device, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8 this morning. We've been studying Acts in the early church, the early movement of God's Spirit among His people. We've been studying the outworkings of giving ourselves to the Lord, of allowing Him to take control of who we are and what we do. And you know from a couple of weeks ago, if you we're here or have had an opportunity to listen to, to the message God gave us that, that anytime God's people gather, there are needs. This issue of control is significant because there needs to be met. And somebody has to meet those needs. And if we, in fact, as followers of God, are called to give up our control, if we are, in fact, called to trust Him for His control, then that means we also have to, contr- we have to trust Him to meet our needs. 
In the early church, there was a significant need, you may remember. There were widows that needed to be cared for, and the church leaders decided they had the responsibilities of preaching and teaching as their primary responsibility, and so they needed to turn it over to some others to take care of this. And we've talked about that before, so I mentioned it only to bring us back into that context. Stephen and Philip and five other men were selected to administer the, the needs, administer the finances, take care of the widows that were not being cared for. And they had been doing that, but anytime you're following the Lord and you're doing His will, inevitably you have an opportunity to witness to who He is and what He's done and what He's doing. And so we talked about Stephen. We talked about him being the first martyr. We talked about the fact that he was trying to get the message out to others about how significant Jesus is and how it changed everything. Even the religion that supposedly came before it. It was an eye-opening revelation for Jesus to come in the flesh and step into our world. The people, the leaders at the time, who had worked very hard to set up control over the church, weren't happy about this at all. And they pushed back substantially, even to the point that they killed Stephen, his first witness. And after Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out, not among those first apostles. Those were called to ministry within Jerusalem. And they were not scattered, but... Those of the next circle out, those that, were, those that were followers that had connections beyond Jerusalem, they began to be scattered. The persecution was intense. And as they scattered and went in different directions, the text tells us they continued to preach the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Apparently, this good news was so impactful in their lives that they couldn't stop talking about him. We pick the story up in chapter 8, verse 4. It says, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And then it gives this example of Philip. Philip, one of those deacons, if you will, one of those men chosen to help care for the needs. You see, the Spirit was alive in him, just like the Spirit was alive in Stephen. And as Philip began to follow not just his own desires, but the leading of the Lord, things began to happen. Philip found himself in the, in the town of Samaria. He went there, and even though Samaria was an off-limits kind of place, it was a group of people that were not only not highly esteemed, they were thought poorly of. They were not welcomed. And yet Philip went there to take, to take the message of Jesus to them. And the crowds listened intently because they were eager to hear his message, the scripture says. And they were eager, eager to see the miraculous signs he would do. Many evil spirits or unclean spirits were cast out. People were healed. Those who had been paralyzed or lame were restored to good health and were restored to the community. There was great joy because of what the Lord was doing as His Word was, was delivered and the good news of Jesus was conveyed. Now, as you might imagine, it's not just a select group of people that are hearing this Word. Everybody was hearing it. Anybody could hear it. And one of those people hearing it was a man named Simon. 
We don't know a lot about Simon. Simon is not spoken of in great detail, but we know a little bit, and that is to say that he apparently had been into magic. Simon had been living in that area for some time, and he was known to the people to have power. He was known to have power through this magic. Some called him a sorcerer. Your translation might say that. We don't have to understand exactly what magic Simon was doing. We don't know exactly why he was doing what he was doing. But Simon was at work using his magic power to convey to other people that he was someone important. And they were listening to him. And Philip comes along and begins preaching the good news of Jesus and Simon took note of it. In fact, he watched what, Simon, what, what uh, Philip was doing and he recognized, not only in his words but in his actions, the power that was beyond his own. He knew there was a greater power than the power that enabled him to do what he was doing. And he took note of it. In fact, not only did he take note of it, our story tells us a little later in chapter 8 that he actually believed in the word that was being preached and he asked to be baptized. All indications were Simon wanted to be a part of this. And we would praise God at that, right? You would say, hey, wonderful. A man who was using power other than God's, a man who was advancing an agenda not of the Lord's, has come around. And we would celebrate that. Except the story doesn't end there. You continue reading the story and you realize that even though Simon has accepted this new word and gone to the extent of being baptized into it, demonstrating for other people, anybody who would, would publicly observe this, that he wanted to be a part of this group. Something must not have been right in his heart. Something must not have changed because he gets down to the, to the point of saying to Peter and John, who had come, by the way, from Jerusalem, these were overseers, you know, they were ones who would, would come and check out what was going on in any new work of the Lord, just to oversee and, and make sure things were going well. And upon their arrival, and seeing the Word of God and the power of God continue, Simon says to Peter, Hey, can I get in on this action? In other words, I'll pay you. I'm not expecting you to give it to me. I'll pay can, can I buy this power from you so that I too can have it? In other words, when I do what you're doing, when I put my hands on someone and pray for them, the Spirit of God is imparted into them. The Spirit moves in and lives in them. I would love to have that kind of power. Can I buy it from you? Now, before we go too far on the judgment of Simon, which is easy to do, maybe you're not doing that. I don't mean to make an assumption on your part, but I know it's easy for us to do that, particularly if we've been in the church a long time. So, oh, you got to be kidding. You can't buy this. You can't buy God's power. I would invite you to think for a minute in our day and age, are there any parallels? Are there instances where we, God's people, maybe try to gain God's favor 
Maybe we try to access his power. Maybe we try to bring about things that will advance our own causes and our own purposes and maybe even make us look good to those around us. Thinking that God will bless our efforts. Something to think about. Are we Christians guilty of trying to use our faith to advance our own agendas? Are we Christians guilty even in our worship services of using things available to us to make ourselves look good or popular among the people? Do we maybe lack confidence that God's Word and His Spirit are powerful enough to draw people without our help? There are a number of things that we need to check ourselves on. And I'll leave that with you to think about this morning. That's not the point that I want to drive home. But I will say to you that if you spend time looking at us, not those outside the kingdom, us, those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, those of us who may genuinely want and desire to follow Jesus, Maybe there's things that we do intentionally or unintentionally that others would see as more about our agenda than they are about His. But in this story, Simon very overtly says, Hey, Peter, I'd love to buy this power. Now you would expect Peter, being Peter, to have something to say, right? You would expect this bold character to come back and say, ah, not so fast, Simon. Doesn't work that way. You wouldn't expect him to shy away, but perhaps you wouldn't expect him to confront as he did. Let me read this to you. I'm in the New Living Translation, and your translation may read it a little differently, but in the New Living Translation, Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. Wow, even for Peter, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Let me say that again. This is a man who has seemingly accepted the word of Jesus. This is the man who has said, I want to be, and in fact was baptized. This is, by all accounts, a new follower. And, okay, he gets things a little wrong. He's a little off, right? Hey, can I buy this? No, man, it isn't for sale. Isn't that way we might say it today? You don't want to offend him, but obviously you need to correct him. You can't let that stand. Surely somebody didn't get to Peter to say, that's not the way you talk to people. Dude, are you kidding me? May your money be destroyed with you? Can I hear somebody from the audience say, judgmental? Wow. But again, back to Peter. Funny how God does things sometimes. Peter would be the perfect one to make such a strong statement. 
Because if you remember from Peter's time with Jesus when Jesus was on earth, walking among them, Peter was the one to make some pretty bold statements. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, where at the very end, now Peter has already made pretty substantial statements about who he was going to be and what he was going to do. And he'd even corrected Jesus when Jesus had told him that he was going to have to suffer and die. No! No way! In other words, people in your position, messiahs, they don't get killed. What are you thinking, Jesus? Pretty bold. And having been corrected, and we might think through watching this story from the outside, surely you've gotten the point. But down to that very last evening Jesus had with his disciples and Peter, his good friend, as Jesus was going to give his final demonstration of who he really is and who he's calling him to be. And he took off his outer garments and he wrapped a towel around him and he got out on his knees to wash their feet. One of the lowest of low jobs. Peter said, no way. No way. You're not going to wash my feet. I'm in John chapter 13. And Jesus replied, you don't understand. You don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. Never will you wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Now, in many of our translations, it says, unless I wash you, you'll have no part of me. In other words, Peter, you can't be a part of the kingdom of God. You can't be a part of the whole purpose in becoming unless you submit, to, submit yourself and allow God to cleanse you. I'm not washing your feet. In other words, you've got to admit your need, your total need. You've got to allow your friend and your Lord to do one of the lowest jobs because without it, you can't survive. And you certainly can't have any part of the kingdom. It's about giving up control, isn't it? It's about acknowledging I'm not in control. And despite who I think I am or want others to think I am, despite all of my intentions and my efforts to earn and so I can stand on my own, at the end of the day, you have to clean me, the dirtiest parts of me, in order in, in order to be a part of your kingdom. Again, Jesus said, you don't understand this now, but someday you will. Fast forward to our story in Acts, and I'm fairly confident that Peter's gotten the message. Because now Peter turns around and says to another, you can't buy this. And even your desire to control God's power 
will result in your destruction. You've got to be cleansed. You've got to submit. You've got to surrender. You've got to allow the Lord to be God. And that means taking your hands off completely. In verse 21, Peter says, You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Sounds to me like you got the message. Peter. So what better person to say so firmly and decisively you must change your ways. Friends, this is a strong message for us. Not as strong as if Peter was standing here in front of you, I think. I don't quite have his personality on most days. But if Peter was standing in front of us today, or if he was with you and me alone in an empty coffee shop, just the two of us, and he had the ability to know us, to know our hearts, to know our motivations, to know our drives and desires and our intentions, to know our fears and insecurities, would he say to us very bluntly, Reed, you have to stop this practice. You have to stop this desire. You've got to change. Because what you're working toward will lead to your destruction. It's subtle at first. But if you continue down this path of trying to, to gain security for yourself by gaining control over whatever, it will eventually lead you to your own destruction. in whatever bold ways Peter might say it to us. It's harsh language, but it's because he wants to get us to hear the really good news. You don't have to control. And you don't have to be afraid. Because the one who made everything has extended a hand to you to say, I will watch over you and care for you. I will provide for your needs. And even though you may go through what you don't want to go through, I will bring you through it and give you life to the fullest. That's his invitation here. That's his extension. It's not just about being saved for eternal life, although it is that. It's about living day to day. It's about saying, I know you're fearful. I know you want to be in control. I know life is disturbing and scary. But if you'll give over your control to me, if you'll trust in me, no matter what you're facing, and if you'll stop trying to control everything and simply trust me and follow me, I will lead you to the good life. Then we can have peace when we lie down to sleep at night. Friends, I invite you to, to think seriously today 
and this week? In what areas are you fearful? In what areas are you needing control because you don't know how to live without it? In what ways are you maybe inadvertently so hung up on controlling this or that that you're risking what God has for you? And then I invite you to say to the one who understands, the one who loves us just simply for who we are, Lord, I want to give you my control. And you know how hard that is. I can't even do it without your help. That's our prayer today. And as our band comes up to lead us in closing out our service with singing,